welcome to the Coachella Valley Storytellers Project. We have quite the night ahead for us. I'm Daniela Franco, I'm the features editor at the Desert Sun and your MC tonight. <laughs> if you've been to a Storytellers Project before, you might know me from the February event. No? Anyone? You were great. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> you weren't there, but thank you. <laughs> Who's been to a Storytellers Project before? Great. For those of you who are new, here's what you'll see tonight. We have four people, not professional storytellers, just people like you, and they have been coached to tell a story around a theme. Tonight's theme is Close Encounters, which with this venue, it's very, very good. By creating a space where community members can share first-person stories, this project explores the importance of, the pers of personal narrative as the means to connection. The Coachella Valley Storytellers Project is produced by the Desert Sun with a partner, UC Riverside Palm Desert's Low Residency MFA pro Program. The series is dedicated to the idea that oral storytelling and journalism have the same goals, serving, reflecting, and connecting community while fostering empathy among those people. Right now, I will ask Maggie Downs and Todd Goldberg to come up and say a few words. Hi everyone, thank you for being here. Sorry the sound is so awful. I'm, I'm just gonna keep like doing this until it gets better. Um, so we do a lot of awesome things at UCR Palm Desert, but this is probably our very favorite thing to do. Don't tell my book club. Um, but this is such a great chance to meet members of the community and connect with them and to connect with your own humanity because that's the purpose of storytelling. So thank you all for being here. I think everyone in this room has a story to share. So if you would like to be on stage at the next event, we would love to coach you in telling your story. Thank you, Maggie. We would love to coach you. I'm, I'm Todd Goldberg. Please remain seated. Um, <laughs> I'm the director of the Graduate School in Creative Writing, Writing for the Performing Arts at UC Riverside. Uh, we have in the room at least, let's see, we have one, two, three alums of the program that I can see. Um, and Hi, Oh, four? <laughs> I can't actually see beyond the second row, unless my glasses are on. Five? Uh, I don't think you graduate from our graduate school, but we'll, I'll charge you $45,000 if you like. <laughs> you owe me $45,000. Uh, this partnership that we have with the Desert Sun is, is part of our long-range uh, philosophy of providing free or low-cost arts and cultural programming for the Coachella Valley. It's something we do almost every single night during the school year at UCR Palm Desert, and something that we are dedicated to continuing to do at little or no cost for as long as both Maggie and I and our dear friend Tamara Hedges, wherever she has disappeared to, our side. So we hope you enjoy this evening. If you have a story you want to tell after tonight, come up to Maggie specifically. Tell her your story. And then she'll tell me about it. Don't speak to me. Don't look me in the eye even. Uh, we would love to talk to you. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful time tonight. And we can't wait for our storytellers to get up here and wow you with the tales of woe and wonder. Thank you for supporting the journalism that we have at the Desert Sun. 
For all of you who are not subscribers, thank you for giving us a chance to show you the value of what we put out. The $10 that you spent on the event tonight would give you a one month digital subscription to the Desert Sun. Maybe you've read our coverage from the crisis in the Salton Sea, or maybe you've read Bruce Fessier's, who's somewhere here, okay. over there. Maybe you read his weekend story on Linda Carter, but it is, it is your, the, your subscription which allows us to do that journalism and allows us to give insight to the desert. So thank you. And if you would like to grab a drink, or you know something to eat during the show. We're gonna leave the back doors open, and you can also go to the bathrooms to the back. So feel free to go out, and we'll get started. First up is Alan Monroe. Alan has worked as a research scientist with the Texas Parks and Wildlife <laughs> Department and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, where he studied the effect of climate change on endangered species. Currently, he's the president and CEO of The Living Desert, and tonight he will tell us a story about a close encounter in his life. Thank you, Mel. So by round of applause, who would like me to play the role of the moon today? Stand in front. <laughs> Sleeping nest that gorillas use every night. 
And they were really excited because the leads on this were still fresh, which meant that it had been used just that previous night. So somewhere out in those shadows was a shape that might be a mountain gorilla. You know, so the, the hairs coming up on the back of my neck and my arm, I really didn't get super excited about this. Because this is really, for me, a bucket list opportunity, something that I've thought about for a very long time. It, as you might expect, I've got quite a love of animals that began when I was just a little kid. When I was growing up, I, I wanted so many animals to keep and have pets and such. So my parents had to adopt a rule. And the rule was I couldn't have it as a pet unless I could catch it. <laughs> so as long as I could catch it, I could bring it home and keep it as a pet. So I spent many a day in the backyard with a laundry hamper perched up on a stick, tied to a string, and I'm waiting for some unsuspecting rabbit or squirrel to come by that I can catch and bring home uh, after he took the bait, which was usually part of a peanut butter and jelly sandwich my mom made for lunch that day. I'm not sure I ever actually caught any of those animals, but that was the effort I put into it from the very beginning. And I was also was really a voracious reader of books when I was younger. And I really loved the story of Mega Rice Burroughs and the story of Tarzan and the tales he told about the jungles of Africa. And I always imagine myself going there to see the sights and the sounds and the smells. Had the opportunity to experience what they were like firsthand. And so now here I was, literally halfway up the volcano, on the way to see some gorilla. And there was where a gorilla had been sleeping just the night before. And this is really a super special moment. I can't believe how excited about this. Because I also knew that the stinging nettles that were lining the trail and the little ants, those are on the gorilla's diet. That's what gorillas eat in the wild. And so this is prime gorilla habitat. So I'm sure that Brian, $1,500, I'm going to see that so we walked another 20 or 30 minutes up the trail, and we mounted a corner, and there was a little small clearing where the trees gave out to a little meadow, really about the same size as this uh, room we have right here. And the trees had thinned out, and it was filled with plants, stinging nettles, growing about four feet tall, just a whole meadow of stinging nettles. And there in the middle of it, right about where that woman's sitting right there, we saw the unmistakable hairy back of a mountain road. Now we clearly hadn't snuck up on him, not with all of the puffing and puffing we were making our way up the trail. But he was too cool to pay too much attention to us. He just slowly slowly looked over his shoulder and acknowledged that he saw us and that we saw him. And we could see when he turned around that he was delicately peeling off some of the leaves of the nettle plant and chewing on it. He had a big wad of vegetation in his mouth as he was having to be So we watched him for, free, for a few moments, and then all of a sudden the underbrush kind of started to move and other gorillas started coming out from the jungle. And in only a matter of a few minutes, there were literally a dozen more gorillas of all shapes and sizes. There were young juveniles, maybe a year or two old. Uh, there were three or four adolescents, um, a number of uh, mature females. And then the last animal that came out was the mature silverback male. Mm -hmm. And the guys told us this was the Sabinio group of gorillas. And they could tell them apart as individuals. You know, each gorilla kind of looks the same, more or less. But if you looked at them carefully enough, you'll see that they all have different distinct noses, different number of freckles, different number of spots, and the nostrils are all different. So next time we're going to have about 10 we look at the gorilla's nose, that's <laughs> And that we were uh, really blessed because the male silverback, who was the leader of this troop, uh, he was given the name Guhanda. Guhanda. And Guhanda, the famous gorilla, if you go home tonight and Google Guhanda, his Facebook page will show up. <laughs> He's known because he is the largest silverback gorilla in the Burma National Park, and he weighs more than 480 pounds. Wow. So you're only given one hour to spend with your gorillas. Your time is limited because you can't have a very large impact on their daily lives. So we quickly took off our backpacks, we got our cameras out, we all got situated around, and I tried to find a spot that I thought would be the best advantage point to take as many photographs as possible. Right? And so there are really only two rules for a gorilla encounter. The first is you're not allowed to actually reach out and touch the gorillas. And the second is you're supposed to give them space. Stay back 10 to 15 feet. There's no reason to get any closer. I don't think the gorilla is spread <laughs> They want to know where our group is spread out. Uh, we're out number two to one by the gorillas. And but they're just going about their daily activities. They're busy looking for things to eat. The juveniles are roughhousing with each other. Uh, there was even one mature female that had a little gray around the temple. And she's sitting in a little beam of, of sunshine. And I think she's taking a nap because her eyes are closed. And she's just there uh, going out. And so the guides have told us about uh, how they communicate with so this is one thing that I found really fascinating. They said that there was a, a call that they used to tell a group to gorilla vocabulary. 
that they used to indicate when they're approaching the drugs, and the call goes something like this, it goes, <laughs> and that call means, hey, we're walking up the trail, everything's cool, we're just coming with you for a little while. And then it also was a call that means kind of a chucking sound, <laughs> and that's the call that means, hey, back up a little bit, you're a little too close, get out of my face. And so we're sitting there having this wonderful encounter, and as soon as we sat down in the backpacks, all the other gorillas are just ignoring everything that's going on, except for the juveniles. The juvenile made a beeline for the backpacks. <laughs> and just like human toddlers, they seemed to have no sense of boundaries, they were very inquisitive, and they really had no sense of fear. <laughs> and so I'm sitting there cross-legged down in the meadows, trying not to get stuck on the backside of the horns. And one of these little juveniles comes starting walking up to me. He's getting closer and closer. And pretty soon, he's right at my feet. And he reaches down and starts to play with my shoelaces. Now, on the one hand, I didn't want to encourage his behavior because if I wasn't supposed to touch him, clearly he wasn't supposed to be touching me. But I couldn't help think about, I have a laundry basket. But just as I was really, you know, I think he's very close. He's literally almost sitting in my lap, and I'm just putting him away. And one of the guides saw how close he was, and the guy gave the warning call. <laughs> and just like that, the little guy dropped his shoelaces and backed up four feet. He clearly understood the message that he was not supposed to get so close to those strangers. And so, in the back of my head, I can, I can hear the ticking of the clock. Our one hour is just going by so fast. But I'm trying to make sure that I can take as many photographs and videos as possible. But I also want to just sit back and enjoy the moment. Think about being in this particular space and time, having an opportunity to have this encounter with this wild gorilla troop, see how they live their days, and just have a glimpse into what it's like there. But as the hour was slowly ticking by, the thing that really had a clock in their head also, because one by one, they slowly faded back into the underbrush, until the end of the hour, we were once again all along the forest. And so, at this point in time, our group kind of let out a collective sigh, so we've been holding our breath for an hour. <laughs> Uh, there were high fives and wide-eyed rings as we celebrated the wonderful success we had. We had made it all the way up the mountain. We were a little muddy and had some, you know, thing that will burn, uh, burn, things like that. But overall, it was really just a great opportunity. And we got our backpacks together, put our cameras back in, and started hiking down. Now, on the way up the trail, we've been so filled with excitement and enthusiasm, maybe just a little bit of fear, not quite sure what was going on down. But it was a little different on the way down. On the way down, we were a little more somber of the group, as we tried to absorb the impact of what we experienced and the thought that these gorillas had been living on top of this forest for the last millions of years and the hope that this remaining 800 animals would be there for a moment.
your skin or your fur, and then your corkscrew grows into your flesh. We have weeds that make you believe in the existence of evil. <laughs> so we think it is a thing. It's important. And I understand the need for a right one or a one.
Ever since he was a kid, he loved to tell stories, which led him to attend Orange County High School of the Arts. And tonight, he will be telling a story about his close encounter with being cool and law enforcement. <laughs> I went to a junior high school with uniforms. And when I say uniforms, I'm, I mean, one of the colors of the uniforms was actually oatmeal. Like they got their inspiration for the color from oatmeal, which I didn't even know was an inspiring color. But we were all forced to wear these oatmeal shirts. And as a chubby little seventh grader, I wore an extra large oatmeal shirt. And I remember walking into orchestra class and thinking, I'm gonna play the viola because that's the cool instrument. <laughs> and, and the band teacher, the orchestra teacher, looks at me and says, you're playing the bass because you're so big. <laughs> I stood out for all the wrong reasons at this little middle school, and I realized very quickly I wanted to go anywhere else. And so at the end of my seventh grade year, a friend of mine told, friend of mine told me about an art school that was opening up. I jumped at this opportunity because I was the star of the, the plays that we performed at church. I was actually Nehemiah in Oh Nehemiah, Nehemiah. <laughs> I was going to share my talent with the world, right? And so I was going to apply to this art school and I was going to be in musical theater and maybe I could finally fit in with these people because these were my people. And I went to this audition and I had practiced everything have a monologue I'll set aside as a seventh grader, and I have a song I'll set aside, Oh Me, Oh My, Me, Oh My, right? And I went up there, and I was all ready, and I did the choreography and everything, Oh Me, Oh My, Me, Oh My, What Are We Gonna Do? And I realize now it was vaguely offensive, the song. <laughs> but as I sat down, I had this confidence like, yeah, I got this. And then the next person went up. And this is the greater Los Angeles area art school. And so the future Mariah Carey, right, she starts belting my jaws on the floor. And they do these monologues that leave me sobbing. I'm a complete mess because these kids have, since the age of three, been trained to be on stage. I realize I am not going to fit in with these people, right? So I go home, tail between my legs. I am sure there's no way I'm going to get it. And I spend the next week refreshing the website, hoping that there will be some sort of announcement where they're like, now accepting untalented people. <laughs> and that's when I notice they have a creative writing department. <laughs> and I'm like, I have stories. I have stories I've written. I have, I have angsty poetry about how I'll never fit in. This could be the place for me. And so I submit all this writing and I actually get in to this school. And for those of you who are familiar with Fame or with Glee, those TV shows, I want to tell you right now, that's exactly how it was. <laughs> every, every time at lunch, they would, they would break out in a song. They legitimately would break out in a song. And these people, they could look at each other from across the cafeteria, and just from eye contact, they knew exactly the choreography without saying a word. And they would break out into these musical numbers. And meanwhile, the creative writers were in the basement, <laughs> underneath the stage, in a room filled with books, but a tiny room. And the ceiling was covered with rejection letters from all of our attempts at getting published. <laughs> One of my friends dressed up as a hobbit every day. And by that I mean like hairy legs, no shoes, green cloak. That was her clothes every day. <laughs> I realized very quickly I was an uncool kid in a school for uncool kids. And that's for years where I was, hanging out in the basement, writing stories, and trying to fit in. And it wasn't until senior year that my friends and I decided we were going to do something to submit ourselves as cool kids. This is our last chance. We have to do something. We have to do something big. So we decide we're going to make a movie. And not just any movie. We're going to make a horror movie because that's what cool kids do, right? And so we get together. We come up with a script. We hire actors. We, 
we, we get all of this equipment and we get a crew together and we actually hire a friend of ours to make all the props for this horror film. And she goes out of her way to get this skeleton and to cover it in chicken meat and to paint it with blood so that it smells like a corpse and it feels like a corpse and it is a very convincing prop. So we decide we're of course going to store this prop in a wooden casket. And then we have to film on location. So we go with our crew and my friend who's directing it and myself and these actors and we drive out to Joshua Tree. And then we drive as far as we can away from the city of Joshua Tree, the town of Joshua Tree, and then we get off of the road and start walking as far as we can with all of our film equipment and of course a casket with a corpse inside. <laughs> so I'm carrying this thing like a pallbearer, right? Walking across the desert until we cannot see the road. We can't see any people, we can't see any buildings. We wanted it to be completely isolated. And so we set up our cameras and we get ready and I'm looking through the viewfinder and I notice a little person off in the distance, just barely on the horizon. And as I'm looking, I'm like, that person's not walking here. I mean, like, there's so much desert. They're probably just on a hike through the desert. It's fine. And so we continue filming a little bit. And then I look up, and I notice this silhouette is getting closer and closer. And if you've ever been out in the middle of the desert where you think there is nobody, there is nothing more terrifying than somebody. <laughs> just one somebody on the horizon getting closer and closer, and finally, we're all starting to get a little bit anxious, so I zoom in with the camera, and this is a police officer who somehow found us in the middle of the desert, right? And I think to myself, we are going to jail. <laughs> There's no way we're gonna get out of this. We don't belong here, and we've got this stuff, and, and we're gonna get in trouble, and, and I don't know what's gonna happen, and I end up throwing the corpse back into the casket that we brought, laying on top of the casket and yelling to the police officer, it's all fake, it's all fake, I promise. <laughs> this did not settle the police officer's contemplation. Like he was still very much afraid of what we were doing and I end up with my face in the dirt, handcuffed, with my friend next to me, also in the dirt, and for some reason the rest of the crew is just kind of standing off to the corner, <laughs> including the 25-year-old actor that we hired who's kind of too cool for this, and realizing like maybe this police officer is playing a prank or something, because he's just sitting there like, what are you guys doing? Why is he in the dirt? What is happening right now? But the police officer still hasn't opened the casket. And so I'm looking up from the dirt as the police officer walks closer to the casket and puts his hand on his gun as the other hand starts to open it and I see on his face, we have convinced him, even just for a split second, this is a legitimate dead body. <laughs> and I think, I'm going to jail tonight. <laughs> There's no way I'm getting out of this I'm gonna to have to call my parents. They're going to wanna to wonder, they're gonna to wanna to know why I brought a dead body out in the middle of the desert. They're gonna to wanna to know what, what we were thinking in the first place. And I spent that night in jail. Not really, I'm sorry. <laughs> I woke up the next day, I went to school and I was back in the basement with all of my friends who told stories to each other. And so I shared my story with my friends about this crazy thing that happened over the weekend. And they were confused because they were like, wait, you left the house? What, what do you mean? <laughs> you went to the desert and you filmed a movie? And they started to tell more people and we actually submitted the film to like a film festival and it won and it was this thing. Like we had actually done it. And I realized in the next few weeks that I started, I started to tell people all sorts of stories, but no longer in the basement. I was outside where the sun shines, right? <laughs> And I was talking to these actors and these dancers and all these people who learned way sooner than I did. That the coolest thing that you can do, the closest that you can be to cool, is just sharing all of your stories and opening yourself up to possibilities. Saying yes when you think there's no way you'll ever fit in.
the high school musical, you know, like the school, I don't even remember the name, but I think I would have been in the basement as well. <laughs> Next up, a self-described desert rat. Larry Bohannon does not need an introduction, as least, at least as far as we're concerned. <laughs> he has lived in various desert locations in Southern California since 1971, the past 31 years in the Coachella Valley. He works at the Desert Sun, you may have read his stuff, he's a Gulf writer and columnist, and tonight he will be telling us a story about a close encounter with death. <laughs> Sun for going down? <laughs> Actually, you'd like to thank the sun for going down. Uh, I am the golf writer for Desert Sun, and you're probably expecting a story about golf. This is not a story about golf. This is a story about the second time my friend Shelley tried to kill me. The first time, she and I had gone up the Palm Springs train for what I thought was going to be a nice little hike around the valley and turned into a forced death march. <laughs> that time, she acted alone. <laughs> this time, she had a co-conspirator in my friend, Diana. Now, before I go any farther, I'm gonna let you know I'm still friends with Shelly. I'm still friends with Diana, despite what you were about to hear. In fact, Diana wishes she were here tonight in order to defend herself. <laughs> Diana likes to run away to islands. She just spent nine months in the Azores, for instance. This particular summer, she ran away to Santa Catalina Island. But unlike other people who go to Catalina to go to Avalon, she was in this little cafe <laughs> called Two Harbors, where she was working in the cafe looking for things to write. So my friend Shelly and I went over for the weekend to see her. Bad And I got to do a lot of things. I hiked and I slept in a yurt. I don't even know what a yurt is, but I slept in a yurt. And the second day, Shelly and Diana say, let's go kayak. Now, this is a good point for me to tell you that I've never been in a kayak in my life. But who am I to stand in the way of a good time? <laughs> Besides, it's just this little bay filled with all these yachts. Okay, let's go kayak. So we get these three plastic kayaks, and we start out among these million-dollar yachts. And we, this is where the plot unfolds. <laughs> we get to the edge of the bay, and they say, you know, if we go around this point, this rocky point, you can see it almost all of the island. It'll be great. This is where I need to tell you that I haven't put on my life jacket. Because we're just going to be in this bay. <laughs> if anything happens, I could fall out and walk back to the shore. No, no, no. No life jacket. We go around the corner. And sure enough, you can see almost all of the island. And it's beautiful, rocky, wonderful. And then they say, you know, that next point down there, if we go around that point, you can see all the caves and everything like that. Okay, fine. We're going along. They're going along. Two experienced kayakers and a golf <laughs> And we get out past the second point, and sure enough, there's these caves and everything's wonderful and great. And they say, well, maybe we better start back. So I try to turn this kayak around, away from the island. And I start noticing these waves are a lot bigger than I'm used to, considering I'm used to waves in my bathtub. <laughs> but I get the thing turned around. We're fine. This is where Shelly and Diana decided it'd be fun if the two of them raced back to the harbor. And psh, off they went. But I'm okay, because I got this kayak thing figured out. And I got my shoes and socks off, and I'm in the sun with my big floppy hat off the coast of Catalina in a kayak. This may be the most California moment I've ever had in my life. <laughs> and we're go I'm going along, and I don't know where they are. And I see something in the water in front of me. 
And I get a little closer, and I get a little closer, and I realize it's a life jacket. Oh, no, it's not my life jacket. It's either Shelly or Diana's life jacket. So I'm going to be the good guy here. I'm going to pick the life jacket up out of the ocean and take it back to them so they can save the money on the deposit. And I get a little closer, I get a little closer, and I get it over here, I reach down to grab the life jacket, and the kayak goes upside down on top of me, and I'm in the ocean. This would be the point where I tell you, I can't swim. <laughs> My friend Diana says I swim like one of those little toys you get in a Happy Meal at McDonald's. You make a lot of motion, but you don't actually go anywhere. That's me. It's amazing how the human mind works. Because I'm in the ocean maybe two seconds. But in that two seconds, it dawns on me that this is going to read like the stupidest obituary in the history of <laughs> Larry Bohannon, desert rat and non-swimmer, drowned today off the coast of Catalina in the Pacific Ocean in his first attempt at that kayaking. In lieu of flowers, just laugh. So I come up out of the water and I grab onto the kayak, which is upside down. And the thing about kayaks is they're really smooth in the bottom, and that's why they go through the water. And so I slip right back off the kayak and back down into the water and get a couple of more pints of seawater. So this time when I come back up, I'm smart enough to grab on to where the seat was, where there's all these ropes and snaps and all this stuff. And I grab on. And there I am. And I'm going to die. <laughs> and I look to my right, and about 26 miles that way is the coast of California. <laughs> and I look to my left, and about 70 yards is the coast of Catalina. And I realize I can't reach either of them. <laughs> oh, this is wonderful. This is a stupid way to die. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, appear two angels. Two angels in wetsuits in a rubber dinghy. And one of these angels looks at me and says the stupidest thing anybody has ever said to me. Do you need any help? <laughs> slips into the water and begins the slowest Australian crawl in the history of the world to get to me. Somewhere that way, I hear Diana's voice. Shelly, he's in the water! <laughs> because you see, when the kayak turned over, it also turned kind of perpendicular to the path I had been on. And I'm on this side of the kayak, and they're on that side. They can't see me, but they can see of my hat bobbing up and down on the road. <laughs> and they think I'm under the hat. <laughs> so eventually, the angel, my good friend Pam, shows up. We get the kayak turned back on its bottom. And she says, now, this is what I want you to do. I want you to grab on the kayak. I want you to swing your right leg up. I want you to just get up on top of the kayak. So I grab my kayak, I swing my right leg up, I just pull too hard, and I'm on the, in the water on the other side of the kayak. <laughs> Laugh all you want. I did the same thing going the other way. <laughs> Finally, I get up on the kayak, but I'm on my belly with my head where my feet are supposed to be. She says, swing your legs out, push back, you'll be fine. I swing my legs out, I push back, I'm back into the water, <laughs> more seawater. Finally, I get on the kayak. I am discombobulated. 
I have no idea what's going on anywhere. I feel like a beach square because I got so much seawater. Diana and Shelley decide to join the party. <laughs> and suddenly I hear, I've got one of his shoes. I've got the other one. And Shelley comes up in her kayak and looks at me and could say any of those things at this point. What she says to me is, where are your glasses? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> the world is blurry through seawater for me right now. So my other good friend, Irene, says, don't worry, I'll go down and find your glasses. And she looks under the water. And we're getting shoes and socks and all this stuff. And Irene comes back up with my glasses, with one of the lenses having popped out. I said, how in the world did you find this? She said, well, <clears throat> Pam and I are uh, marine biology graduate students at USC. And we go down into the ocean and our instructor will write something on a whiteboard, turn it around real fast, and we've got to go find that, whatever it is. So I just normally go down and look for things in the bottom of the ocean. I said, that's amazing. How deep is it here, by the way? She said, 60 feet. <laughs> I'm not in the swimming pool when it's five feet deep. <laughs> so Pam and I really decided there's no way I can get this kayak back to that harbor. They're right. So they tie my kayak up to the dinghy. I pour into the dinghy. And they start off to take me back to the harbor. Shelly and Diana continue their race. <laughs> So we pulled into the harbor. Then he helped me get the kayak untied back onto the beach. I offered to buy him lunch, anything. But he said, no, we gotta go to the other side of the island. We really can't do this. I hugged Pam, I hugged Irene. They walked off on the Catalina, and I had never seen them again <laughs> to this day. I turn around, I lay down on this Adirondack chair on the beach. And I wait for Shelly and Diana to come in. <laughs> and so I've learned three things from this experience. One, never get in a kayak again. <laughs> Two, if anybody here ever sees Shelly and Diana together, run. Get <laughs> on way. And three, I have no idea how I'm going to die. But I promise you, I will not be on the water. <laughs>